full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Olympic gold medalist Scott Hamilton is pretty much synonymous with figure skating. He's been fighting the odds ever since he was adopted as a newborn. Now in his 60s, he's fought various cancers and dedicated his life to helping others struggling with illness and loss. Scott Hamilton, author, businessman, advocate, stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM News, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. More at vpm.org. Joining us from Tennessee is none other than Olympic gold medal figure skater Scott Hamilton. Uh, he is synonymous with the sport, and not only synonymous with that, but uh, a multiple-time cancer survivor, Scott. I remember in 1997 you had that diagnosis of testicular cancer. You've since uh, persevered through several brain tumors, and you're here talking to us in 2020. Yeah, it's it's kind of surreal, actually. It's, you know, looking back on... In so many years, you know, I've got the gift of age, which is kind of ironic due to my hobby of collecting life-threatening illness. It just seems like um, it was four versions of me ago. So it's really great to, uh, you know, just be able to, you know, look back on on troubled times that, you know, I was able to rise above. And, and then when the next thing comes, I just, you know, you feel, you know, once you get through one thing, it's almost like you dread having to go through anything else, but you know you can do it. But you've been through so much. I mean, you were adopted as an infant in, uh, uh, you know, in Ohio, and I, I just remember reading that you had uh, an illness that stunted your growth when you were small. There were several tests. The doctor gave you a pretty dire diagnosis, and so you kind yeah, of I got had lots of those. <laughs> you kind of started with a hand tied behind your back, and you went on into an amateur career weighing what was it, 108 pounds? Well, that was I was 108 at the Olympics in 1980. Um, but you know, it, it uh, you know it's it's funny because everybody's lives you know present their own levels of challenge and um, you know complication and everything else. And and I think that you know it it for me it, it, all of that was ultimately for my good. You know, the, the I, I'm I'm kind of one of these disgusting, sickening optimists. You mm. know, like I can turned um, harsh, difficult circumstances into positive things. And when I look back on all those uh, nights I spent in the hospital between the ages of four and eight, uh, a lot of times I was by myself. And, you know, it's, it's unnatural for kids that age to be by themselves like that, away from their mom and dad. And, you know, children's hospitals now are much different than they were back then, you know. Um, you know, back then it was you know very sterile environment sure. with a bed with a chair in the corner of the room, and and you know now they're you know day beds. They've got all the comforts of home, and it wasn't that way back then. So my mom would try to spend every night she could in the hospital with me, but then there were many many nights where she couldn't be there. But you know the the optimism side of me says that all those nights alone truly taught me how to be independent from a very young age. So now when I'm, you know, I'm stepping onto the ice at a a championship and I'm alone on the ice, that was a muscle that I built very early in my age to be able to kind of deal with that. And, and, you know, each of them Mm. presented their own sets of circumstances. But in that regard, you know, just, you know, being independent from a very young age and learning how to kind of stand up to things really allowed me to 
to be able to, you know, be successful in those moments where I truly had to rely on myself. How does a five or six year old process that grit on his own? I'm thinking back to my time and how dependent I was on my parents. I was born in another country and came here and felt like a, a lost child. And the more I was left alone, the, the more scared I would get. And, and in reading your biography, I'm struck by how maybe you had something embedded or inchoate that you brought from your biological parents or something that yeah that... i mean who knows <laughs> um yeah it's 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 just odd it's almost like um and, and at times i think you know well this is just my my cross to bear you know this is just my existence this is what i'm supposed to be doing i'm supposed to be you know, sort of dealing with illness after illness after illness after illness. And ironically, you know, when I go from my 97 uh, cancer, um, you know, diagnosis and chemo and surgery, you know, go ahead seven years. Now I'm a husband and a father and I'm diagnosed with a brain tumor and they couldn't really figure out how to diagnose it. So finally they had to go get a biopsy, which is basically sticking, you know, mm-hmm. drilling a hole in the top of your head and sticking a needle down through the top of your head to get a piece of this tumor. And and when they diagnosed it as a craniopharyngioma, the the irony there is, you know, craniopharyngiomas are brain tumors that um, a child is born with. Right. And so whatever my childhood illness was, and thank goodness it wasn't diagnosed as a brain tumor back then because it would have been a, a really a big open surgery without really um, the tools to do it well. I'm sure that, you know, my physical and mental and emotional development would have been much different, you know, had I had to endure treatment back then for that brain tumor. And, And they still, I don't think anybody understands why for all those years that I skated, the brain tumor didn't do its mischief. But, you know, months after I'd retired from skating, I'm dealing with this thing for the very first time or the very second time, I guess, you know, from those years I spent in the hospital. I don't understand how you, one, laugh at it and two, keep such a strong uh, sense of faith. Uh, a lot of people would have been disillusioned or, or uh, cynicized by it, if you will. Like, I, I'd, I'd, I'd be shaking my fist at the heavens like, are you kidding me? You did this to me, well, a kid. I, mean- <laughs> I, I read that. You know, I, I, we're going to talk about the book Fritzy Finds a Hat. You lost your mother, uh, you know, when she succumbed to cancer. And you're, you're, you're taking all of these body blows consistently in your career. And yet you enjoyed euphoria also in 1984. And you've been incredibly blessed to go and help kids. You've, you adopted two children from Haiti. But how do you not succumb to, um, I know it sounds a little cheesy, but kind of the despair and the cynicism? You know, everywhere you read in the Bible, you know, we know that we're going to face difficult times. We know that we're going to be challenged. We know that in all those things, you know, it, it helps us build endurance. Um, it, it helps us uh, build perseverance. And ultimately, it helps us, you know, be hopeful um, in our lives that we can survive the next thing that comes our way. None of us really are immune to cancer yet. No, none of us are immune to problems coming into our lives. But it's, you know, I learned early on, and and that was probably one of the great lessons I learned early, was that it, it's not so much what happens to you, it's how you respond to it. 
And, you know, for all the times that I, you know, I was the littlest one in my, my class, I was the last one picked for sports and you know, all those things that can really mess with your self-esteem. You know, when I, when I found skating, all those self-esteem issues went away because I was uniquely qualified to do things in a much easier way than you know, kids that were much, much bigger than me. So, you know, I was never going to be an offensive lineman or, um, you know, I was never going to dunk a basketball or any of those things, but there was something that my stature and my body type really um, was drawn to, and that was skating. I guess I could have gone into gymnastics too, but skating was, you know, it. And it was um, amazing how I took to it and how it just appealed to every aspect of my personality. So um, I'm really grateful for that. You know, I, mean, I guess accidents happen sometimes, and, and, uh, you know, for me, um, it was a, a beautiful set of circumstances that put me on the ice and allowed me to, you know, find the best part of myself. Scott, talk to me about your relationship with your mother. Look, I sound like Sigmund Freud, but <laughs> no, <laughs> no, yeah, we're on the couch. No, honestly, I'm getting because... <laughs> horizontal now. <laughs> I know to get in even to the conversation, we're going to talk about your first uh, children's book, Fritzy Finds a Hat, which tells the story of a young boy who tries to find the perfect hat for his mother as, as she undergoes cancer treatment, which was autobiographically informed in your case. When did you learn your mother was ill? How did your parents tell you? How did you process it? Well, it was one of those things where she came home from a uh, doctor's appointment and she had kind of a smile on her face and she was very, you know, like it was very light the way that she delivered the news. And she just said, okay, everybody, uh, family meeting. Um, um, I've just been diagnosed with an illness called cancer. And she was very matter of fact about it. And it was like she wasn't the least bit concerned about it. So, you know, and I learned, you know, even with my own kids, they respond to um, your reaction, right? My kids respond to how I react to things. So if they fall down on the playground and they look at me like, am I hurt? And I freak out, then they're going to freak out. Um, like when I came home with the third brain tumor, uh, my kids are kind of like waiting for me to get home. And they and they ask, is your brain tumor back? And I go, it is, yes. <laughs> Do I look concerned? And they go, no. And I go, then neither should you. And I learned that from my mom. She didn't really want us to feel the stress and anxiety of cancer. And so she delivered the news in a way that um, softened it and made it, um, you know, less of a burden on us. And, you know, she really didn't want us to feel that way, to um, have to navigate this illness in fear with her. Um, you know, she just, she knew what she was up against and she wanted us to live joyfully. How old were you when she gave you the news? I was, uh, 16 and she was the center of my universe. You know, I always like to let people know just how important she was to me. So when she faced that diagnosis, you know, if I would have known more about cancer, you know, back then, you know, people didn't talk about cancer. It was the C word, you know, they didn't want to yeah. say it, you know. Because um, saying saying it would invite it in, right? You know, there was a lot of fear. And even now I meet people that are so afraid of it, you know, that they'd rather, you know, not deal with it at all. You know, I, when I started my cancer foundation, um, I ran across an oncology nursing society survey that was given to newly diagnosed patients. And it was really interesting. The question was, what's your greatest fear? in this diagnosis, and 30% of them said death, 
42% of them said treatment. And, and I realized that we've got a real problem here um, that we need to solve. And that's, you know, we need to be better at treating cancer, you know, and not just filling our bodies with radiation and poisoning um, to get the cancer, but we've got to find new ways of doing it. And for me, it's the promise of immunotherapy, but that's a whole other story. But when my mom went through it, you know, she, they didn't really have anything for her. So they just threw everything they could at it. And, um, you know, she lived a little over from initial diagnosis um, to, um, you know, her passing was about two years. What was it like? I can't imagine uh, watching a mother wither. And what did she tell you in the process? Oh, man, she taught me how to go through my cancer. You know, when I was diagnosed, the fear was extraordinary. You know, I saw myself diminishing and, uh, you know, um, succumbing and and then my mom came back to me, and she used to say things all the time that were really, you know, kind of alarming. She'd say things like, oh, my goodness, this chemotherapy, I finally found a way to lose all this weight. And she would say, um, oh, this chemo is remarkable. I've wanted to quit smoking all these years, and now I have no desire to do um, that anymore. And then she'd say, oh, I love this chemo. I've always hated my hair. These wigs are so beautiful and so much easier. Mm. And so in that way, she she kind of taught me how to respond to cancer. You know, cancer is something kind of ugly that's growing in our bodies. And it's a, it's a you know, cancer has always had a negative, um, you know, uh, kind of identity. And to me, you know, having a negative response to the cancer um, and a neg- creating a negative environment around it feeds it in some way, shape, or form. And so um, by, you know, standing up and for me, it was, you know, my mom teaching me how to go through it. And it was laughter in my room and and creating an atmosphere that wasn't based in fear or dread or sadness or um, some feeling that, you know, I was being treated unfairly by all of this. But it was like, what are your next steps? Well, my next steps are this. I'm going to be the best patient that's ever been treated um, here and I'm going to um, get my life back as soon as possible. And my nurses kind of got me right away because I was always making jokes about everything, you know. And yeah. and so my my nurse would decorate my chemo bag with Snoopy stickers and Mylar, and um, my band aids were SpongeBob and Scooby Doo. I mean, they treated me like an uh, eight year old, <laughs> and it was it made it kind of fun. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Scott Hamilton, the legendary American figure skater and Olympic gold medalist. He's reinvented so many times as a multiple cancer survivor. He has a new children's book out. Uh, His charitable work has been covered quite a bit. You can see him in People Magazine on the Today Show. Uh, I am also fascinated when I think about this period and you learn about your mother at age 16. You know, at age 13, you started training with a former Olympic champion. And uh, by the time you're age 18, you're, you're, you're finding that the cost of training was so high and you had to enroll in college, all of this stuff, while you're losing your mother. And I, I know I keep hitting back at the grit thing or what is it that makes certain people so resilient about it. What blows my mind now when I, when I see your bio is that you were also carrying a kind of a dormant congenital brain tumor that was misdiagnosed <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, I look at that brain tumor and, it, and you know, I was born with it. Okay. Unlucky. Right. Um, 
it it put me in and out of hospitals for four years. Unlucky. Oh, and that a shame. Um, and then it it stunted my growth. Oh man, really? That's not fair. And then you know I I had to learn you know kind of how to stand up to this thing and make the most of it. So. You know, I can look back on all that and say, wow, challenge, challenge. Oh, it was unfortunate. It was negative. It was awful. It was, look what it did to me. And then I, I, I take another step back and I go, oh, wait a minute. Um, you know, I, I was able to survive. Uh, I, you know, I, I, when I got through it, I was able to live a very normal life. Uh, it gave me skating. It gave me an identity. It gave me um, an aspiration. It gave me a way of of creating um, a really solid foundation for making a living. And it gave me so much more than it took from me. And, you know, I'm the perfect height and build to be an ice skater. And, and it, it just sort of like, how am I, how am I going to get mad at that? You know, how am I going to get mad at my brain tumor when it made everything possible? All the really cool, amazing, great things that I've gotten to experience in my life were a product of that brain tumor. How in the world can I be uh, resentful of it? You know, it's, it's like, yeah, it's a nuisance. And yeah, I've got to do some things that aren't really comfortable. But at the same time, everything that I've been able to experience and all the, the benefits from it far outweigh any of the discomfort and any of the fear or anything else. And, you know, it, it ignited my faith. It um, it, you know, solidified my marriage, you know, in, in a really unique mm-hmm. way of, you know, now we're, we're in it together. We're in it to win it. We're going to, you know, it is what it is, whatever it takes to, you know, defeat this thing, we're going to do it together. And, you know, it, it was really powerful in a positive way. And, and, you know, there, I, I don't know, I, 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 I say goodbye to friends, you know, who succumb to their cancers way too often and it breaks my heart. But, you know, in so many cases, I see what they're able to do knowing that their lives are um, now ultimately, um, you know, they've been shortened and they know that, you know, that there will be a day. And the way that they live, the way that they mm-hmm. um, wrap their arms around their condition um, is truly inspiring. You know, it's just amazing. I, I just um, lost a, a very, very, very dear friend to multiple myeloma. And, you know, when the myeloma went into her nervous system, which they've never really seen before, um, at least her doctors haven't, um, you know, she went into hospice and um, my whole family went to see her and she was very happy and she just said, I'm good. I'm really good. I don't want you to shed a tear. Worry about me. I'm in probably better shape now than I've ever been in my life. and. Uh-huh. And, and it was just, you know, thank you, my children, you know, they, they, yeah, my little guy, he cried as hard as I've ever seen him cry when she was gone, but they all recognized just how um, beautiful and how um, sacred life is and how it's to be enjoyed and um, uh, embraced and appreciated and elevated to, you know, to really be something special that you protect and that you, um, you experience in, you know, at the highest level you possibly can. And, and it was a a powerful lesson for them, you know, in their, in their heartbreak, you know, I think 
she planted a seed in them that was just really profound and, and extremely powerful. Scott, um, how do I ask this in a <laughs> professional and decent way? How badly did you want your mom witnessing what you did in 1984 in person and the gold well, medal she, and the Sports Illustrated and the Wheaties box? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, uh, of course I did. But, you know, I, I go back to the day that I lost her was, you know, I mean, she was the center of my universe. She was everything to me. She was the person I love most on the planet. And when I lost her, I mean, it was definitely a fork in the road. You know, which way am I going to go? Am I going to go into the world of self-pity and self-destruction? Or am I going to go the other way? And, in, you know, in that time of, of uh, trying to process how to mourn her, I decided to bring me bring her with me to the ice every single day. And so I wanted to become the person that she always thought I could be, the, the person that would, you know, walk me through the neighborhood when I'd pass a test and, you know, brag about it. And if I won a medal in a competition, she'd want to show everybody. And, you know, she'd say, we're going to the Olympics someday. And I, you know, I basically said, based on what, you know? And so she, she, you know, whenever I didn't feel like showing up for a, a session, I would, you know, say, no, 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 I'm, this is for my mom. I'm going to, I have to be that person that she so desperately wanted me to be. And of course I'd go. And if I didn't feel like doing a long program run through, cause it's really super hard. Um, I'd say, you know what, you know, she endured a lot for me. The least I can do is a long program run through for her. And it made me, you know, more accountable, made me stronger. It gave me a greater reason to skate than just skating. Hmm. And um, it made it all possible. So when I look, you know, it's like when I'm standing on the podium and I'm crying like a baby and I'm just so uh, honored and thrilled and humbled and and um, frightened and sad and happy and um you know, all those emotions that come with that moment of, of you know, the award ceremony at the Olympics and hearing your anthem, it's just like, yeah, I really wish she would have been able to be there, but she was there. She was the, as big a part of it as anyone, you know, standing in the room or anyone that was intimately involved in all those years of prep preparation. I couldn't and wouldn't have done it without her um, incredible spirit and her love and her sacrifice in my life. I, I never could have risen to that occasion without her. And um, so she was with me the whole time, not physically, but definitely mm. in my heart. She was with me the whole time. Scott Hamilton, tell me about the honeymoon period after the famous 84 Olympics. I mean, you're so <laughs> iconic. I can imagine a call from Nancy Reagan. I mean, every possible 1980s trope, like, do you want to appear on oh, different yeah. strokes? Do you want to be on the Cosby show? Oh. Do you want to be on Knight Rider? Oh. I mean, no, e everything that I, you want to be skate. in a back to school special. <laughs> no, I want to skate. You know, I, it's funny because um, the first two things that happened to me once the Olympics, I, I had a parade when I got back to Denver and it was all these, it was really exciting and fun. And then, um, the, 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 uh, the governor of Colorado invited me to come to his office and I thought it was like a, a press op, you know, I thought it was going to be a photo op press opportunity, whatever. And he basically shut the door behind me when I came into his office and he just wanted me to 
understand the hometown hero syndrome of, he goes, I want you to understand that you have every right to enjoy every moment, you know, Mm -hmm. the fruits of your labor, but I really want you to wrap your head around the fact that it's not going to be like this forever. And, you know, just prepare for the days when you're not going to have parades or people coming after you for all these things. And I was really blown away by how um, generous that was and how unbelievably kind it was for him to prepare my heart for the days where, you know, the glory part of it was way over and I was stepping into a, you know, kind of a day-to-day life. And the next thing I did after that was I went to the Paralympics banquet to be a, you know, do a short keynote. Hmm. And I, I walk in there and I'm looking at the bravest, most resilient people that I'd ever seen in my life. And I'm thinking, who am I? You know, I, I, I was able-bodied and I did all this stuff. And these guys are doing things that I can't even imagine. Um, and it just was really humbling. So, you know, my honeymoon period was spent in preparation for, you know, times where it was going to be very quiet and there wasn't going to be the, you know, the crowds and um, the notoriety and all those things. And, you know, little did I know that um, the approach that I was going to take to my professional side of the career would give me 20 years of crowds and, you know, opportunities. And and now, you know, I'm I'm so grateful to skating that, you know, I, I have a uh, a skating academy with the Nashville Predators in um, Nashville, Tennessee. I work with them, and we're building hockey players, figure skaters, hopefully speed skaters soon. And I do that as a volunteer. I serve the community in that way as a thank you for what skating did for me. And and then I have my foundation where I work as a volunteer, and um, you know we're raising money for you know the right kind of can- cancer research and. If we can unleash our body's own ability to fight back cancer as it does every other disease, then we've really done our jobs well, and um, that's our entire platform. You know, you are you are cameo galore. I remember you in in the uh, sitcom Roseanne. There was a linoleum skating yeah. competition. <laughs> I remember you in, so in, Bla- in Blades of Glory. Right? Yeah. There was a very brief yeah. appearance there. I've. Uh, uh, King of the Hill, you were the dog dancing commentator on the oh, animated man. short. Yeah, I mean, it's like all kinds of things that are fun. I mean, they're just they're just fun to do. You know, when I was in, I don't know, I was having a really, um, you know, kind of a rough patch. Um, then I, Roseanne invited me to do that linoleum skating with Kevin Quinn. And and that was really a great time. And, and then when I got the call to be the commentator for all the competition sequences in Blades of Glory... You know, I couldn't wait to do it. I've been asked to do a commentator role in all the other skating movies, and I was like, nah, <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> seem like it would make me happy. I even turned down I, Tanya just because I just didn't really want to li- relive all that, and it would just seem, eh. And so, but with Blades of Glory, you know, when I got that invite, it was like, can't wait to get there, can't wait to be a part of it, and it was absolutely ridiculous, you know, the the stuff that I got to do there, but... Um, you know, I've been really super blessed to have these crazy opportunities. And, you know, I always preface everything by, okay, here comes another Forrest Gump story, you know, <laughs> where I'm going to run across this or I got to do that or, and, and I've just, I've been so, you know, fortunate that I've, you know, I've gotten to meet and thank so many of my heroes, whether they be in music, entertainment, um, politics, whatever that is, business, you know, I've gotten to shake a lot of hands and, and express my gratitude for all the things that that 
they've made possible. And, and, and that's been a really good um, kind of after effect of, you know, my skating and the longevity and everything else. Scott, how did you learn of the testicular cancer diagnosis in, in 1997, was it? No, I was an idiot. I mean, I was an absolute moron. Um, I'd had abdominal pain. I knew there was something different in my abdomen, but I thought it was an ulcer or something sort of relatively, you know, inconsequential, just abdomen pain. But I couldn't stand up straight anymore. And so I go, okay, I've got to go and find out what's going on. So I went into an emergency room, and I was 50 cities into a 60-city tour, and I couldn't stand up straight hardly anymore. And, and uh, the doctor there put me through a lot of tests. And he sort of sat me down at the end. And he said, um, we found a mass. And I was like, a mass? Like, no one's ever used that word in description of me before. And he goes, well, it's either benign, malignant, or something else. And it scared me to death. I, I was like, well, I, well, I got cancer? Oh, my God. I, how, I, I can't. I can't have cancer. I'm. I'm booked. I'm not available to have cancer. You know, I've got. I got a busy life and career. But, you know, I got. You know, sidelined for a little while, and, um, and you know, I realized that, in so many ways. And again, you know, what I said before about my mom coming back to me. This episode, this, um, this challenge was going to be everything that I make it, and so I had to be really smart about how I approached, everything. How did they break that out for you? Did they did they immediately discuss childbearing implications or no longer skate? <laughs> yes. I'm sorry to be yes. you know too graphic with no, this. No, no, they did. No, they, they it's all that you know because I wasn't married yet. <clears throat> you know, I was older. I just I poured everything into my my professional career. Sure. I, you know, I never had I had this opportunity to you know to do things in a really big way, and I you know I, my life is so unlikely that, you know, I just, it, it just doesn't make sense. You know, why, how, what, why am I getting to do all this? And it, it just didn't make, make any sense to me. And, um, I was just so, you know, humbled and, and blessed to be able to, um, look back on that and just sort of, you know, just rise up as best I could and, and, and really get back to, um, the things that I really wanted to do with a greater sense of appreciation. How did they intervene? Did they try to sell you on chemotherapy, radiotherapy? Oh, uh, no, no, did they did all that. On? And no, it's almost funny, right? So the, the four doctors came in the day after they, they did a, um, a biopsy of my abdomen. It was kind of controlled. They could find the tumor really easily on an ultrasound, like you can see the baby in an ultrasound, that kind of thing, because um, it was twice the size of a grapefruit. It was huge. Wait, what? But I was so... I know. Wait, yeah, I was wait. like, I was an idiot. I was an absolute idiot. It was you like, had a, hold I on, knew. let me explain this. You had a tumor, testicular cancer, twice the size of the grapefruit in your lower abdomen? Yeah, it was in my abdomen. Yeah. So was it a I always had a little pooch from... and I couldn't figure out. Yeah, it just, it went there and stopped. Like normally when you get to stage three, it's now in other places in your body. You know, other pla other people, when they get to stage three, um, you know, it goes stage four almost immediately into the brain, into the lungs, all those places. And for whatever reason, mine stopped in my abdomen and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so um, when they finally found it, you know, they, like there's these blood markers they use to determine the, um, the stage of the cancer. And, you know, a normal, it's called the alpha theta protein test, you know, in your blood. So they check, you know, normally it's zero to four. Mine was 8,800. 
And so they knew they needed to get a handle on that immediately. And so um, I started chemo immediately. But it's really funny when they laid it out. It's like, okay, so you have a stage three germ cell um, cancer, testicular origin. It's like, no, I don't want that kind of cancer. <laughs> and I go, no, this is this is personal. Now you're into my other stuff. And I don't want you. No, I don't want to. Because I knew I was public and I'd have to talk about it, right? And I'm not going to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that and so they just sort of said no if if you had to choose a cancer this is a really good one that's like who would choose a cancer i mean that's insane the doctors removed a a larger than grapefruit sized tumor from your abdomen no 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 what happens is they put you on chemo and it shrinks the tumor and by the time they got done with you know i guess um it's it's each day of, of chemo is eight hours infusion, and they do that five days in a row. And then I go off chemo for 16 days, then I go back and I do five days in a row of eight-hour infusions, and I do that four times, right? So by the time they got done with the fourth round of chemo, the um, the uh, blood marker you know uh, number was down to almost zero, and um, when they went in to do the surgery to check for other cancer, the tumor itself was about the size of a golf ball. And so um, the, the chemo really worked, and um, I was able to get back to life relatively quickly. You get back on your feet, but uh, it was in 2004, I remember, that you announced you had a benign brain tumor and got treatment at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, shift ahead uh, six years later, you had brain surgery to prevent the recurrence um, well, and- it was a recurrence that they <laughs> took out. Yeah. Now so, the tumor yeah, so could have caused blindness, I understand, if you left it untreated. Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of mischief makers. Um, they grow into things. They grow in and around things. And the first occurrence in um, 2004, um, it was kind of like gnarly and it was wrapped around stuff. It was wrapped around my um, optic nerve. So the best case scenario was to go in and do gamma knife radiation so they were able to do that, and um, all of the, the cancer cells you know, were uh, killed. Um, but then six years later, I had a recurrence. And so this time, it was about the size of um, maybe a little larger than a pencil eraser. And they were able to go in and um, resect it through my, actually through my sinuses. And they, um, there's a, you know, it, within you know, a single digit percentage of people, um, there, there can be a nicked artery, and, and I was one of those people that I got an artery nicked, and it created an aneurysm, so it took about nine more uh, procedures to get rid of the aneurysm, and then I was um, you know, kind of back to life, and then six years later, <laughs> do we see a pattern forming here? <laughs> uh, the tumor came back, and this time, I just heard this inner voice say, get strong, and I, I didn't know what that meant, and you know, it's, it was almost beyond intuition, right? So they say it's back and um, we're going to run you through your options today of how to treat this thing or how to, you know, get rid of it. And I kept hearing, get strong and get strong, get strong. I just, that's all the only feeling I had in my, in my gut, in my being was get strong. And so they go, what do you want to do? And I go, "Um, I want to keep an eye on it. I just want to get strong. And they go, okay, well, we'll just keep an eye on it. I can, you know, be back here in the three months. So I went back in three months and the tumor, I, like I was doing workouts and changing my diet and I was really busy and I was into the word and I was doing all these things just to get strong 
physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, I was going to get strong on every level. And um, it was really interesting how um, when I went back for the next scan to track its growth, it it hadn't grown at all. And so they, they said, come back in three months. So I went back in three months and um, the tumor had actually shrunk. I can't believe that. Like, how? I mean, chemo was very essential to you shrinking that testicular cancer in 97. Right. You talk about the mass and then it going from grapefruit size to golf ball size. But you must yeah. have an incredibly, more than more so than other people, an incredibly ambivalent relationship with, with chemo. And it points to the paradox of you kind of have to poison the body to help the body. And I don't believe that. I, I honestly believe our bodies are incredible instruments that can do miraculous things. And and so the, the key to cancer is to unlock what our bodies like to do anyway. And they like to be well. And they like to, you know, live... Um, functioning well. And so if we can, you know, take a different approach to treating cancer by um, teaching and um, unleashing our own body's immune system to fight the cancer, then I think we're doing the best things we possibly can. So in this particular regard, it's like, well, what are these tumors like? Will they like sugar? Okay, no more sugar for me. Um, oh, and they like um, an acidic environment. Well, I got to keep my stress levels down and drink lots of high pH water. What else? You know, and so anything like that the tumor liked, it was like, okay, I'm not going to give it that. I'm just not going to give it that. And, you know, it's it's been amazing how powerful all that is because I feel so um, at peace with, everything, you know, with, with life, with, um, you know, just all the blessings that I've been able to experience and all the incredible, you know, life experiences that I've had. And, you know, they come out of difficult, uh, circumstances, but, you know, I, I look at those as, you know, if, if that's what I need to endure for really cool things to happen, then I'll endure them. Deal. Done. You know, here we go. So tumor number three, yeah, it was yeah, not a big deal. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to legendary figure skater Scott Hamilton. He authored the book, the children's book, Fritzy Finds a Hat. It tells the story of a young boy who tries to find the perfect hat for his mother as she undergoes cancer treatment. Uh, very much your story as a teen with a uh, mother with terminal cancer. Uh, proceeds of the book are going to benefit the Scott Hamilton Cares Foundation and Moffitt Cancer Center. Uh, gosh, you have a lot going on. You're founder of the Scott Hamilton Skating Academy in Tennessee. Yeah. You live in Nashville with your four children. Um, and here's I don't want to I don't want to kind of miss this. Uh, I want to know where your mind was when Donald Trump won in 2016 because you were on Celebrity Apprentice in 2009. <laughs> well, I've known you know, him for a long time. You know, when he opened when he took over the Woolman Rink project, uh -huh. and uh, they had a big celebration to open the rink and. It was the first time I met him, and he noticed that I was losing my hair, so he invited me up to his office the next day to, you know, set me up with some minoxidil. <laughs> Wait, what? Things. And Donald Trump yeah, was yeah. worried about your hair loss, and so... Yeah, yeah, you know, he's, he's big on, you know, he likes hair. So, um, you know, it was just really neat to see that side of him. You know, his children were very young. He was, um, you know, uh, Ivana was, you know, they were still married and, you know, it was, uh, he was just sort of a really interesting guy and very generous. And he, he loved athletes. I could tell back then that he really liked athletes and he loved the success of, you know, the woman rank project. And then, 
you know, I'd run into him at different times. Um, we did a, a big TV special at one of his resorts, um, for, you know, it was a, a rock and roll, um, skating spectacular. We did that. And, uh, you know, he was there. Um, and then, you know, I just see him at the today show or in different times I was in New York and, you know, I saw him in, in, in like different ways. And I guess a lot of people have seen him, you know, he's, he's, you know, very, uh, bold and, um, you know, at times brash and, you know, is the way he speaks and things um, you know, but I've, I've learned that, you know, he's a kind of a guy that really enjoys getting things done, you know, and, um, you know, he's, he's very big in his public persona, but he's very quiet in his philanthropy and a lot of the good that he does in the community. And so, you know, I, I guess, you know, for anybody that hasn't spent a lot of time around him, you know, they, they have one image of him and, and I, you know, I kind of, I, I, I have a, that's probably a, a different one, but um, I've always enjoyed being around him. He's bigger than life, and um, you know he's uh, an interesting guy. I want to talk to you about fatherhood. Um, yeah, this all happened very quickly. You became father of four kids. Two you adopted from Haiti. What was that experience like? And especially again, not to be too graphic, you survived testicular cancer. You got through this. You must have felt enormously relieved. You get married. Uh, subsequent to that, and and you have a thriving family. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so, um, after my testicular cancer, I was thinking, oh, this could be tough. So when Tracy and I got married, um, you know, it, it, we did everything in order. We got engaged, married, and pregnant in order. <laughs> and uh, my son was born nine months and two days after we got married. And um, so it was like, okay, well, that wasn't a a problem. And then. Um, you know, I have a pituitary brain tumor and now, you know, pituitary you know, dysfunction. And so how are we going to have another child? So I self-injected for two years. Um, I did, uh, six days a week, I did an injection for fertility just to kind of help my body, you know, build, you know, the uh, fertility. And none of it worked. And so we decided to pray for another child and go off those injections. And um, six weeks later, we find out that we're going to have Max. And so... Two children thinking life's great, and then I'm away working, um, doing the U.S. Figure Skating Championships in January of uh, 2010, and um, I call my wife to check in and see how everything's going, and she's just bawling. I mean, she's sobbing, and I go, "What's going on? Is are the boys okay? Everything?" She goes, "You're not watching the news." I go, "No, I've been working. I haven't turned the TV on at all." And she said. Haiti was hit by an earthquake. Um, they're estimating between 250,000 to 300,000 people were killed in like 30 seconds. And it's like a, an unimaginable tragedy. And she goes, I can't look away. I, I, I've got to do something. And so, um, you know, she started working for a medical mission nonprofit mm. in Nashville that served Haiti. And then she went down with them um, about a year after the earthquake. And she's been down 28 times. Uh, since and um, you know we we she met these kids and um, originally it was my son who picked out a picture of Jean Paul and said who's that and the woman who ran um, the medical mission thinks oh is that Jean Paul you like him he's very athletic and he's very smart and he's very happy and she goes we're gonna get him Christmas this year and so uh, Tracy took a video down for Jean Paul. And then they became inseparable. And then Jean-Paul's little sister, Eveline, was always around um, Jean-Paul and Tracy. And they just sort of struck up this beautiful friendship. And then I went down 
And, you know, I, I came right into that friendship and then it became obvious that we were to bring them home. And so we started the adoption process and hit every obstruction obstacle, um, you could imagine. And, um, you know, it was amazing how, uh, we knew that nothing was going to stop us because every obstacle was miraculously lifted. Um, and we were able to bring the kids home about two years after we started the adoption process. And, and, uh, they've been with us for about five and a half years. Yeah. I think it's fascinating of, of, um, your mother's candor with you, how, how, um, serene she was and how straightforward she was. And you talk about uh, gauging your reaction from her reaction. Uh, to what extent did your four children help you with this book, Fritzy Finds a Hat, which is talking about the ultimately such such a delicate topic about a, a child and, and a, a, you know about to lose a parent. You got illustrations in the book by country music superstar Brad Paisley. But I want to know how your kids kind of fed back to you to build this book. Well, I mean, you set an example, right? And my mom taught me that, you know, what I, I, and I mentioned it earlier when my brain tumor came back and my kids were kind of nervous. They go, is it back? And they go, it is. And so, you know, they go, you're not worried about it? I go, no, are you? A little. Well, if I'm not worried about it, you shouldn't be. And they go, okay. And then they were fine. You know, I guess it's so much about that is, you know, um, how do we empower our kids to um, go on our adventures, whether they're, um, exciting or whether they're frightening or whether they're, um, you know, threatening, you know, I mean, what do we, how do we empower them and how do we educate them to rise up to their own challenges? And so that was kind of my deal was I'm here to make sure my, my kids are empowered to face whatever comes their way and, and to live as an example to them. You know, it's when, my first son was born. It was the first time I saw flesh of my own flesh. You know, I was adopted at six weeks of age. So it was really powerful. And it's like, okay, now what do I do with this? And it was, well, I need to be, I need to be the person that I want him to grow up to be. And so, you know, I, I just, I made sure that I, I was very intentional about the way that I live, the way that I presented myself, the way that I, um, I, I, I spoke the way that I, um, I worked the way that I played and, you know, so I could set a strong example for him. Now your adopted children have a sense of mortality. How young were they when they were adopted from Haiti? My son was 13 and my daughter was 11. So they know that things do and will fall apart. They know about calamity. They know about the Oh, they lived in the most dysfunctional country in the world. <laughs> I mean, that's Haiti is they just they can't help it. You know, it's um, it's not like there's not opportunity there, but it's it's not opportunity that's um, really open to all parties. You know, education not open to all parties. Um, you know, it it's a it's a tough place. And, um you know, it, it's politically challenged. It's um, historically challenged. Uh, it's geographically challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I think what most people are seeing is economically, it's, it, you know, there's a lot of people doing extremely well in Haiti, um, but there is no competition. Every business is basically a monopoly. And so um, it, it, it you know, when you think of the United States of America formed, a, you know, relative, about the same decade as Haiti, 
you know, you look at that and you go, why are we us and why are they them? And it all comes down to the way um, we set up, you know, our uh, constitution form of government and how we do business. You know, they, mm-hmm. they have tons of opportunity there. They just need to open it up a little bit and, and uh, you know, really allow for people to rise up out of poverty where right now there really is a ton of um, access barriers to education and to opportunity. Uh, talk to me about your interactions with other people in the celebrity limelight who are dealing with cancer. I, I saw in People Magazine that Shannon Doherty, who has advanced yeah, cancer, is struggling with it, uh, that you're, you're sending her strength. Uh, I wonder what you think about Alex Trebek's public. Uh, I, I can't believe that someone can handle uh, that pancreatic diagnosis with such aplomb, and to keep hosting shows, and to send a message of hopefulness. I, I imagine that in his shoes with maybe the most dire cancer, pancreatic cancer at stage four, I'd just want to be home. I'd want to hand the keys to the show to someone else. I'd want to enjoy my 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 final year kind of in privacy. And yet he's out there extremely in the public eye, uh, briefing everybody, putting updates on, on social media. I can't get my head around that. Yeah, I think it's, it's just... You know, when we look at who we are and we look at, um, you know, how we live our lives day to day, and especially in a cancer diagnosis, you want to live your life on your terms. Exactly what you said. Your terms would be showing up, you know, time with your family and, and stepping away from work. And, you know, for him, I mean, that's his, that's what he loves to do. That's what makes him happy. And honestly, with, you know, so many people I've seen go through cancer for them, they really want to, um, live normally. They, they, you know, they don't want cancer to redirect their day to day. They want to live their lives normally and, and as if they didn't have cancer. So in that regard, I really applaud and admire him. Pancreatic cancer, um, has had really um, no improvement, uh, no improvement in it. I mean, the other cancers. Well, I think about your brain tumor, which fortunately uh, you had uh, an intervention, an interdiction. But think about Ted Kennedy or John McCain or Bo Biden and the uh, gliobacteria yeah, that are so yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. This, um, you know, with pancreatic though, there are places that have much greater. Um, survival rates, you know, because they do different procedures and they do things differently. And this is something that, you know, I want your listeners to hear. And and that is, you know, there are really good doctors out there that do miraculous things, um, or not miraculous things, they do really good things, right? But then there are guys that do six a day, mm-hmm. right? So six a day, guys, that's all they do is what you need. And they're the best at it. So let's say you need to get, have a, um, a knee surgery, Right. Are you going to go to a, a guy that does, um, you know, shoulders? <laughs> you know, it's like you really want a guy that's done, you know, 100,000 knee operations. And that's all they do all day is they go in, they fix knees all day. And and with some of these, you know, you go to even some of the greatest cancer centers in the world, they may not have the person that is the absolute best at what you need. And, and you know, with the right kind of insurance and everything else with there's no access barriers there you know you can navigate to that one person or the right person that all they do is what you need and um, they're not kind of a jack of all trades doc but they are 
they, they're the six a day doc. And, and that's the one thing I've learned with my unique hobby of collecting life-threatening illness is that, <laughs> you know, you need to get to that guy. Like when I had my brain surgery, um, you know, there wasn't anyone there to fix the aneurysm in the way that I needed it fixed. They just didn't have that guy. Um, they tried it. They were almost successful. And then when I went to another healthcare facility, I ran into a six a day guy who was able to fix it, bam, like in minutes, it was fixed. And so, you know, it, it just comes down to that, you know, where you stand in your, in your battle against cancer in many respects depends on where you're sitting at the time. And, and I, you know, if you're sitting across from a, a surgeon, you know, his passion is surgery, you're probably going to get cut. If it's, you know, radiation oncologist, you're probably going to get, you know, radiated. And if it's a hemonc, you're probably going to get infused. But there's all kinds of other options for cancer treatment. There's proton therapy, there's immunotherapy, there's targeted therapies, there's um, the natural methods that people are using now to um create a different environment that's not friendly to the cancer. And there's a lot of ways of attacking this. So I, I urge people, it's not about second opinions, it's about seventh opinions. You know, um, find out everything you need to know and get to the right person that can help you guide you through it and um, out the other side of whatever your affliction is. You know, when I read about your experiences and I think about the universality of, of cancer, it afflicts everyone regardless of, I mean, yes, if you're poor, if you if you have a poor diet or you're in environmental conditions and your proclivity is higher to it, but everyone has a family member who's either suffering or has passed away from cancer. Uh, to that end, why haven't we as a nation, and I'm sure you get asked this at green rooms and cocktail parties, why haven't we prioritized this like a Manhattan project? Why is it that well, certain it cancers, has. certain cancers? Cancers have not, they have not improved in terms of, of quality of life or mortality. If you look at pancreatic cancer, if you look at certain brain tumors, uh, it, it is so ubiquitous and so universal. Um, you wonder why it's not at the very top of somebody's agenda. I mean, Joe Biden certainly talked about it when he lost his son. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it, I think a lot of it comes down to resources. A lot of it comes down to, status quo. I think a lot of it comes down to um, healthcare in this country. Um, a lot of it comes down to insurance, Medicare. You know, a lot of it, it it's just sometimes, you know, disruptors in, in, in an industry or whatever, it's not, it's not always welcome when there's so much at stake. You know, with the, with the infrastructure and everything else that that's going on, and and in that way, you know, I've I've always thought that in my survivorship of cancer, I, I don't want to be, you know, a, a fundraising survivor. I'd rather be somewhat of an activist. And mm. and you look at you know just uh, you know healthcare and and how it's just given a pass. You know, in, in any other transaction you participate in. You, you know, you want to know the cost. And the punchline with healthcare is, you know, this is something new. I think that um, uh, that Trump has said, you've got to publish your prices. Well, the problem with that is, is, you know, let's say you go in for that knee surgery and you say, how much is this going to cost? And, you know, the general answer would be, we don't know. Um, it depends on how much we can get. <laughs> you know, so it's like, well, now you got the dance between 
um, this unholy alliance between insurance and healthcare, where they both want to be massively profitable, and and it, and it's not a it's not an easy thing because you know people desperately need to, to make sure that they're protected against catastrophic illness, but at the same time, you know it's it's the expense and all these things and and how many people and who. Who, who do you, how many people do you have to get through to actually get to your doctor? Um, you know, it, it, it's massively expensive. It's, it's not really regulated. Why does a drug that costs 70 cents uh, when it first came out cost $70 now? You know, why, why, you know, you start asking questions and you realize that, um, that, uh, you know, you, um, you, you, there really aren't many good answers. And so, you know, there, there needs to be some level of um, intervention at some point, but it's got to be done intelligently and not so politically. You know, it's, um, in, in my experience, you know, politics are, here's the problem, here's the fix. Well, it, there's, there's shades and there's colors and there's, you know, depths and there's, you know, it's like, it's not just a, you know, just a, here we go. That's it. It's no, we, you've got to put different things in place in order for the ecosystem to survive properly while you're affecting change in a really positive way. And that's why I've really chosen, um, immunotherapy as the platform for my foundation because, you know, um, it's it's how we're treated for cancer that it really that needs to change. Cancer's not going away anytime soon, but it's how we how we treat it, how we arm our bodies to evict this um, tenant that is a nuisance and is going to ultimately destroy us. So, what do we do? How do we do it? Well, um, if our bodies created it, it's not naive to say that. Our body should be the one to destroy it, not foreign agents. And, you know, so we, there's a lot to this whole dance of healthcare and drug discovery and um, treatment options. Scott Hamilton, Olympic champion, multiple-time cancer survivor, father, inspiration, philanthropist. I mean, you have the longest LinkedIn profile in history. Sir, I cannot thank you enough. Well, sorry for I got on a soapbox there, but, you know, it's important that people know that there are many options out there and they need to know them and be armed to the teeth when they go up against fighting this enemy cancer. Were well, we going to see you on Dancing with the Stars? Never. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I never say never. I can't imagine a scenario that would allow. So there we go. <laughs> thank you so much, Scott Hamilton. All right. Thank you. Full disclosure, you can catch this show on NPR member station VPM News on the NPR One app and, of course, on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>